All right. Happy Tuesday and good evening. Welcome to another episode of Crypto with English. So, you know, I think one of the burning questions nowadays is where can one find a one-stop shop for all of your needs when creating a blockchain project these days? Uh, you know, in many ways, it's almost hard to find specialists, as they would say. So I'd like to introduce a returning guest and good friend of mine, Prashant Gami. He is the founder and CEO of X Enabler, uh, based out of Australia. And today we're going to deep dive into uh, what his uh, company does and how they take clients through the uh, blockchain project you know, creation process, you know, whether it's for an MVP or something in more advanced stages as far as a product or a service. So Prashant, thank you for uh, coming back on. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for inviting me again, and good to be here. Yes. So, what have you been up to since uh, you know since you've last uh, been on the show? Oh, there's there has been a lot of shift. So we grew our team size. Obviously, we hired a lot more engineers. So we are now around seventy-five people as of last month, and it's just growing. So it's just massive growth um, since we last spoke. And we are dabbling more into blockchain, Web3, and all that. I was actually in the U.S. for a while. Uh, sorry, I couldn't catch up with you in person, but hopefully next time. Yeah, done. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, it's... yeah, uh, the, the company is growing, and we are growing in terms of the services maturity. And you know how new solutions are coming every day. So it's just an exciting world. Sure. And, uh, you know, that is definitely some uh, excellent growth, to say the least. And as far as, you know, blockchain platforms, programming languages, um, can you discuss some of that? Uh, what are some of the projects, uh, you know, some of the uh, specializations you have um, at X Enabler now? So we are currently focusing more on the smart contract side, whether it is like okay. Ethereum, Hyperledger, private blockchain, public blockchain, Binance, any um, Solana. Um, so we have Solidity Rust developers, we sure. have traditional SaaS developers and mobile apps developer. So we cover end-to-end -end development and more than just the development, when you come to blockchain or any new technology project, it's more important whether to build it and how to build it. So it's right. not just about coding, but deciding like, you know, okay, how the project will work, how the product will work, how the technology right. needs to fit with that. Uh, also, the things like um, white papers, tokenomics, those are equally important part before you get to actually code the smart contract. Uh, and that's where we try to focus end to end. That it is not just a coding shop, but more about getting from idea to app store all the way and uh, from the technical perspective. So we've been focusing more on smart contracts and uh, the real life utility world so far. And now we are slowly expanding into Web3, Metaverse and those parts. Got it. And as far as the metaverse, and I think it's hard to not come across a blockchain related article these days without hearing about, you know, metaverse and AR and VR type projects. Yes. Um, what are you and your team doing in that uh, in that space? We are currently so we are uh, currently focusing on the smart contract side because that's where our capabilities are. And we are trying to onboard a few Unreal and Unity developers to get onto the gaming side of the metaverse. But our right. focus is more on the business model, the uh, technology, uh, smart contracts, and the tokenomics, and how people can actually utilize metaverse to earn and uh, play and earn, or like participate and earn, or whatever all these earning models that are coming through. Um, right. So we help that. <clears throat> also, uh, the smart contract that goes into DAO. 
and defining the rules of how distributed organization um, can work as well uh, in those spaces. Right. So, you know, if we're to start, if we're to start from, uh, you know, I guess from the beginning here, as far as this process <laughs> overall. So if you have a startup and let's say they come to you and your team, they want to build a project. Let's say they have a good idea, but they don't have anything yet. So there's no MVP. There's no white paper. Um, there's really just the bare idea. Where would you say or how would you instruct a team like that as far as where to start, you know, so to say. So let's so, say, yes, please. Sorry. So there are a number of companies that come through. One is obviously there are new startups who understand the ecosystem and they they already have some idea in their mind what they are trying to do, whether they want to yes. set up a DAO or they want to do an NFT marketplace or they are trying to set up a metaverse. They have a very clear understanding how those uh, entities work and how the business model around that will work. And in that case, our job then becomes is uh, literally listening to those ideas, uh, documenting them and understanding how to like, you know, complement that with the technology. So right. whether they need to be on one particular metaverse or general purpose and go on multiple metaverses, how that will scale, what is the starting point, what the first version will look like, and that might not be the uh, pie in the sky version, but something you can sure. roll out in next three to six months. Um, can you utilize any of the existing solution and get there faster, which is equally important. You shouldn't be building just because you want to build. You need sure. to decide that, okay, what can get you to the market faster and then decide, okay, so now what part I can now build and replace from what I got off the shelf. Um, so that gives you a lot of learning into user behavior early market access and so on. So we help them uh, look at the existing solutions in the market. We help them uh, understand the technical aspect of that. What is the scope? What scope can be cut down? How it can be built in a way that it can be scaled later rather than throwing away and starting again, which is very important. And then taking it from there all the way to launch and then subsequent innovation. Got it. So if a team goes up to you and they have a good idea, would it be fair to say you would advise them to, let's say, if, if a project is better suited for being built on a cloud, for instance, yes. than blockchain, because blockchain is very energy and electricity intensive, yes. that would be essentially the recommendation you would make, like as far as like yeah. guiding that team as far as how, yeah, so, how they're going to build that. Yeah, so think about like a lot of people confuse that because you are doing blockchain everything has to be on blockchain while in right. reality what happens is that blockchain is your ledger does not mean your data need to sit on that ledger so there are a lot of successful projects and applications where it's a uh, zero knowledge proof that means right. the proof exists but it does not have to have any knowledge about the exit like the existing system and the other uh, database where the actual data sits it's the has that is uh, stored as a proof in the ledger. So later on, if you want to check if the data was like, you know, uh, not altered or anything, you can still go and check against the hash, but it does not mean your large data or blob needs to sit on the blockchain because that will be very costly. Right. Um, so things like that. Uh, also things like, for example, if they have done the designing and everything, if they have done like, you know, some idea of this, what they are trying to create, uh, understanding that okay is that the best way of doing that is that going to scale right. up 
because there are a lot of shortcomings in technology that they might not have seen yet uh, sure. from the perspective. So advising them in that regard. So we go through discovery, what we call discovery workshop of a couple of days, brainstorming with the business, trying to grasp the idea from their point of view, because they have been thinking about it a lot longer than what we have come across. So it's very important to listen rather than just, you know, uh, go and say something. So we try to absorb as much information as we can. Then we go out, do some of our homework from the technical perspective. We come sure. back for another round and then we discuss it more and say, okay, this is what we think. This is our recommendation. What do you think? And that goes through feasibility. We do a couple of POC prototyping and then it goes into development. Got it. And then that makes, you know, that makes perfect sense as well. So, you know, I guess as a, as a baseline, you know, whether it's, whether somebody's creating a crypto token, whether somebody's creating a decentralized app, you need to have a white paper. So when it comes to white papers, how would you instruct teams and, you know, future clients as far as where to start on this? Because I, I think at the very least the white paper, it's like a preamble. It's almost like an appetizer, so to say, you know, you know, it's for people introducing their projects to the world so yes um you know tell me about some of uh, that process and and what do you so, generally recommend so white paper has two components one is the technology component which is basically saying whether it can be built how what are the structures going to be what are the token right. um like you know whether it's going to be um erc20 token versus 721 which is the new token and like basically what are the technical bits that are required but the other right. important part is the characteristic and what is the value for the stakeholders? Because if you are investing in a particular coin or particular project or NFT or whatever it may be, uh, you need to understand the value proposition there. So it's equally financial as much as it is technical. So uh, in a business, obviously. Sure. So uh, who are your stakeholders? What is value to them for that particular token? Why would they pursue it? What is the what are the benefits and how you are structuring that system so that the transference is evident before they even buy the token so because everybody comes to blockchain for one and one reason transparency and trust right. if you cannot establish trust with your tokenomics or white paper then i guess the business case is not there uh, and that's that's bound to fail because when people will look at it, it's like there's something fishy going on here. There's so many loopholes or this doesn't make sense. Or what happens when um, something like, you know, when people try to trick the system, which people always sure. do. So those things you need to think about, like, you know, whether your business model, yes, you have a best intent in heart, but is it actually translated into that white paper and the smart contract eventually? Right. And that, you know, and that definitely makes makes perfect sense as as well. And, uh, you know, some white papers, you know, they're intuitive. And uh, I think I think at times you can kind of tell that they're good. And I've also seen uh, very atrocious white papers out there, you know, as well. There's like a scarce data or information on, you know, tokenomics, as you've mentioned, the, uh, you know, the founding team. Um, you know, I, I've seen white papers where nobody has a background in programming or, you know, anything related like that. So, you know, those are kind of like red flags, you know, to me as well, um, especially I think from a mathematical point of view, if the tokenomics can't be easily kind of explained or expressed, uh, you know, that's 
that for me uh, would, would make me scratch my head, so to say. Yes. And, you know, sometimes I see situations where um, people will put in too much information. And I kind of wonder sometimes is like, OK, are you trying to distract from kind of uh, maybe the main point here that, you know, maybe somebody else who might ordinarily realize? I guess I don't know if it's like a white paper gaslighting or something like that. <laughs> but like but I've seen I've seen some projects where they try to package themselves as really great with numbers and you know i guess you could say explanations of things and then it's kind of like you go deeper it's kind of like a uh, more flash and not so much uh you know substance substance as well yeah yeah, yeah. and well, the other thing that you see commonly in the industry nowadays because of shortage of talent is that a lot of things is being built in a very crude way so right. think about this like um part of my job is basically not only to explain client but to like you know hire the right developers as well right and i'm coming across developers who have very little programming experience and has done like 10 different smart contracts already which is great sure. i'm not saying that it is not like sure. they have gone out and do uh, stuff but then i asked them like you know okay so who audited your white paper like you did the smart contract was it audited by someone to make sure like you know that's a good point right yeah everything and they're like no 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 this like you know i just coded it and i'm like it's just university student coding the like right. you know, smart contracts that are not audited and they're out there in the production right it's a very very high risk uh, item because people are putting money in this project and not just small amount so right. if things are not done properly then we hear all these scams and like you know crypto uh, in the crypto world that okay people are losing their money but then at the at the very base of it there's a loose structure that they are built upon and that is right. obviously something you need to look for like as you mentioned team their background what is the understanding uh, if they do not have the understanding themselves, did they consult any? Right. Uh, did, they, did they have the right team around them to uh, guide them about the financial, about the business model and the technological aspect of them? Otherwise, you are basically exposing yourself sure. as a result into those vulnerabilities. Yeah, just to backtrack a little, just to clarify, you know, not necessarily saying that the founding team necessarily has to have a programmer yeah. per se, but I think you need to have people with some type of sophisticated, specialized knowledge in something yes. going into yeah. this versus, let's say, five people who really like NFTs and there's, you know, not a whole lot else there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, look, we all can't be expert in all the fields, but we can always go and seek the expertise and uh, build right. on top of that it's like in your legal profession you know that like you know people come to you they're not they don't have to be lawyers they just need to know the right lawyers that's that's all it is about <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and that, that certainly certainly helps a lot you know is as well and you know speaking of programmers what do you look for when you're bringing on a programmer onto your team like uh, are you looking for you know full stack are you looking at people with just, let's say, a Solidity, smart contracts, and Rust background? Um, what's kind of, I think, the bare requirement to, let's say, so, be considered? Given that team? we are end-to-end -end team and much more comprehensive, um, <clears throat> we go from, like, you know, from Solidity developers, Rust developers, from mobile app developers, from uh, web developers, front-end, back-end, full-stack, all of that. But at the heart of it, um, in whatever domain they are, uh, 
uh, they need right. to be clear about like their particular domain. But when they come to me for the second and the final round, um, I look for two main qualities. One, if they are active learners, because uh, we are in innovation business. And if you are not learning, you're literally like going to rust in six months and then you are off. <laughs> right. And, and, and then you are suffocating in this place. So I, for me, it is very important that I can identify a person is an active learner. And that means uh, he or she, they're learning the things that they do not have to. They're learning out of passion, they're learning out of interest, not because of necessity. And, and that's right. a very, very fine line between them um, that you are learning because you had to versus you are learning because you want to. And, and I, I do the interview around that. The second thing that I always need to look is whatever they are, like depending on their seniority level. So I, when you look at junior or mid-level developers, you're looking at can they uh, understand the uh, instructions given to them and follow them in the way. Uh, when sure. you look at seniors, can they generate the instruction? They, can they explain why certain thing has to be done in a certain way? If they can't do that, uh, doesn't matter how much experience they have, they are still mid-level developers because they still need someone to tell them why things have to be in certain way. Uh, right. So that's that's my role as a as an employer or as a high, uh, hiring manager or whatever you want to call it, but to identify people with those two strongest attributes, whether they are clear on why certain things need to be coded in certain way for the scaling purpose, for the sure. benefit uh, of the product, and a long-term vision, obviously, and the stability. And the other thing is if they are active learner, because what they know right now is good for now, but in six months' time, they have to go and learn new things to be still be relevant. Right. And, uh, you know, speaking of which, so when it comes to developers and it comes to projects, um, I caught something in the newspaper. Uh, Melbourne, in particular, is becoming the tech center of uh, Australia. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like down there, you know, in Melbourne, the, the energy, the projects, the people, you know, uh, talk about that a little bit. So uh, in Australia, you see like a lot of uh, communities are there in Melbourne and it is it is becoming an epicenter of like you know uh, blockchain policies blockchain governance uh, blockchain initiatives and all that uh, sydney obviously is still big and uh, they both play the epicenter role in their own way um, somehow the community and those engagements are like you know much more distributed than it usually were in the previous one so the tech hub and everything now they are more shifted around like the different cities so it is catching up and the other thing is i think Although same with any other governments, the regulations are still coming through as they sure. always are, but at least there is a conversation around it. Like I have been to a number of uh, conferences in Australia last year and this year, and at least uh, the regulators and everyone is turning their head in saying, we need to address this, how we can address this, the policies being made, defined, revised, challenged, and all that, that conversation is happening. And I think that is very, very, important for anything like this to prevent the uh, i wouldn't say prevent but reduce the volatility that we are seeing in the market and technology the right. other important thing that i'm seeing and i'm really fan of that is real world utility so as you know blockchain goes much much bigger than just crypto and nft and nft goes much bigger than just the jpeg and, right. and a lot of people 
uh, I think now that we are in the bear market, people are talking about sustainability, long-term effects, how this uh, thing can actually add value to the uh, world, to the business, to the technology world and everything. And those are the conversations where you have some real long-term innovations happening. And it, I, I think it's an exciting period in that regards. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as far as that, are there uh, any upcoming conferences that uh, you and you, you and your team will, uh, will be at? I know there's stuff going on in Sydney and, you know, Dubai and London. Yep. You know, it, it seems yep. like a pretty uh, active year for a lot of those type of events. I know. You know it's, to say the least. it's all the events are back in person, so people are making so Yes. I'm attending... Australian crypto convention in Gold Coast uh, in September, while my uh, business partner Belinda, she's actually going to London in September. So she's attending nice. a couple of events in London and Amsterdam during September. And then in October, actually, we are hosting, um, a, a, there's a group called SIPBN, which is here in Sydney, and uh, I'm part of that group. So we are hosting a uh, conference investor conference around blockchain web3 and technology in october 18th of october here in sydney in icc excellent yeah it sounds yeah. like you guys are really uh, you know getting uh, some of that increased visibility you know out there which is very very important in this day and age uh, in particular web3 and blockchain you uh, you need to have some sort of social media uh, you know some sort of community presence out there uh, which I think yes. is almost novel in this day and age compared to like Web 2 and Web 1 and so on. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I'm still in my developer cell. I still like, you know, my hands on computer and my head down yeah. rather than talking to people much. But uh, then there are days like, you know, you feel energetic, but I'm still learning that, to be honest, like being out there and speaking about things rather than doing things, I'm still getting used to it. Right. And, you know, a question uh, related to that, you know, despite you could say the volatility in the crypto markets, mm -hmm. you know, these past yeah. few months, it seems like the interest in DAP and NFT projects hasn't decreased. Um, many companies are still pursuing various projects in different capacities on the blockchain. Yeah. Why do you think that is? So, uh, like I said, I don't think the interest has decreased the right. obviously the market cap has decreased and my personal view to that is we are at the end of the hype period so there was technology which was at a research stage then it was at a hype stage where everybody just jumped in and like put money everywhere and it was a like a bull market where everybody was like what can i make in next three months six months and like you know so on and now it is like basically that hype has started dying and uh, but the real world utility has just started. The expansion, uh, if you uh, think about like uh, all these summits, international summits and everything in politics as well, they're talking about uh, what do we do about crypto regulation? We need to regulate right. that. We need to talk about that. Th those conversations were in denial. If you go even like a year or two ago, they were like, no, 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 sure. it's just a hype. At least they are turning to the real world utility to the crypto and regulations and how that can become a mainstream and so on so i think the interest has actually increased although the market cap has decreased uh, and now we will see some like you know meaningful and like mainstream innovation coming through this um, period which will go and sustain longer right and you know speaking of hype 
And I've asked this question to, you know, uh, I guess you could say a few thought leaders in this community mm-hmm. already, you know, some former guests and some uh, future guests I've discussed this with as well. But NFT art, do you think that is a bubble? Um, whether it's a partial bubble or a complete bubble, there is kind of, uh, you know, some whispers and some kind of pondering about that. You know, like, for instance, you can have like a board ape yacht, you know, yacht club project, for instance, mm-hmm. and there's going to be like yeah. 10 copycats you know, after that. So Mm -hmm. I keep speaking with various thought leaders. And one of the concerns is, is that there is some sort of bubble that has developed or, um, you know, or is developing that may end up kind of popping rather or crashing at some point. What what do you think about that? Like, I'm, I'm like coming from a very traditional, like, you know, farmer's family, I would say, and I still get attached to real things. So I think the NFT art has a place in the market but not all the projects are really realizing that value like projects are not about the art art is just a representation or a trophy of that project now if you do not have a real project behind it that is actually fueling those growth or fueling that like you know market or cap or anything then you are just investing into something that that is that doesn't have any substance and if you are not doing those research that why that particular project exists and is there a value into it, um, then obviously you're bound to lose your money or like, you know, uh, things are about to pop. Uh, And and it's just a time rather than if uh, question. So yes, there are a lot of bubbles. People have created a lot of things thinking, oh yeah, this will go big. And in a bull market, you can do that because everybody's looking at just like, you know, market, changes and not real substance behind it but now that and and that's what i really like about this market is people are asking those important questions that okay i'm putting money into this but is that really worth it can i really utilize it what's gonna like what's gonna actually increase it apart from like people uh, bidding off each other and and those things like you know the the things without substance wouldn't last, whether it's NFT art or anything else. Right. Um, but the project that are that has the substance, that has the long-term vision and why they exist, they will flow uh, prosper regardless of anything. Very, uh, you know, v- very well said. And when it comes to you know uh, the metaverse, you know AR mm-hmm. and VR, in your opinion, do you think it's inevitable that society industries are in some ways going to have some sort of interactive metaverse with an AR or you know even a mixed reality experience, so to say. So whether yeah. you're grocery shopping, you know perhaps even Amazon one day, it's probably going to require yeah. you to, to use some sort of wearables, you know whether it's a visor yeah. or haptics and whatnot, and you know create an avatar and essentially go get your goods online. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, do you think so it's going to happen in like I, five years, twenty years? Uh, yeah. I have two hats on whenever I think about metaverse. One is my technical hat on, uh, which is advocate the user experience, seamlessness, how you can actually do that. Um, what is the barrier for me to enter and exit the metaverse, so and so on, right? Uh, right. The other one is a visionary aspect, which is like, oh, this is so cool and it, it will happen eventually. Right. But if I Think about like mixed reality. Mixed reality, we have all been talking about well before meta, like the 
term metaverse sure. came into like popularity so I, I remember that in 2000 and i think it was 10 or 11 where we presented a project ar project to transport new south wales where we wanted like the direction to go and show the arrow um, right because a lot of people when you tell them turn left they don't know which which is left so sure. you know those ar things now we saw in google maps and other um, other applications as well that they do it so mixed reality is already here uh, and i think it's probably like at some point we might be accepting google glass as we rejected long ago and say right. that is acceptable like mixed reality is acceptable so sure. when the when the accessibility to those technology and means are be, uh, become seamless that's the point where this this goes exponential until then it will be experimental and incremental and like you know some people might adapt early adapters are already adapting and it will grow but it will it will accelerate only when those experiences can meet them is is my personal view as a technology user sure. like if i have to put a vr glasses on or a goggles on to like you know get into that and so on it's still yes i like it but i wouldn't do it like as a mainstream right and you know as a sub question to what you said and and i've spoken with other developers about this as well and since you have i think the benefit of having both a essentially developer a programmer's background and an entrepreneurial background maybe you can shed some light on this but why is it that wearables you know mr ar vr why are those accessories still very very expensive because um you know to the best of my knowledge i think virtual reality and everything else related has existed you know in various forms for over 35 years like probably at least since the early 80s there was very very primitive vr you know um i guess you could say goggles yeah. wearables for that and now yeah. we're in 2022 and if i was to just do a basic google search if i was to get an oculus or an htc or something like that it's going to be like 300 and up as almost like the average yes. so it kind of makes me wonder why why is this little space still very very expensive at this point despite the fact so, that technology has gotten better let me tell you a story about like mobile so when sure. iphone came back i was the guy who got into mobile development back then right okay. and we were talking about like 300 millisecond being the uh, response time of any screen so what that means is that if you touch a button and it does not respond to you within 300 millisecond, you will feel like there is something wrong with it. That's, a very good That's how our mind works. All right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even today, when I go and talk to my clients and I'm talking about like, look, you cannot have sluggish screen user will like you know realize it and they were like oh, no yeah. no no it just the network call only takes like you know so and so time i'm like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter right yeah you can you cannot like as a user you wouldn't learn you would not like the products that are sluggish you need to have ui response you need to cater for scenarios when you go offline because you are on mobile in the in, in the middle of city you can go offline trust me i have seen it number of times sure. and People are still saying offline is a like in today's world, everybody's online. So you don't need to cater for offline. I said, when you are in mobile, even a slightest delay, even not having a loading indicator, even simple right. things can 
really make your uh, mind like or dislike a particular product. And when you go to things like um, AR and VR, this becomes even more intense because everything intense, yeah. that our, that we see, our mind is constantly trying to accept or reject that particular thing as a real versus virtual. And that barrier is going to stay there until we can like, you know, go to a quality that feels not only like a, a realistic, like pseudo real, but at least acceptable level. And we are not there yet because to get there, we think that, okay, the little delay is fine in, in terms of number, it looks fine. But when you actually experience it, it doesn't look right. We, we know that it doesn't look right, although it might be the best technology out there. So the price barrier is to the acceptable level. Like anything below that will feel ex unacceptable. Like you, your mind right. will reject it. You will start getting headaches. Uh, all those things will start coming up. So right. keep that acceptable level. And it is getting cheaper. Like if you think about time before, like 10 years or something, this was like not oh, even yeah. imaginable. Right. Today yeah. I can put my iPhone, I can put my pixel into um, like a VR goggles and I can still experience it in a reasonable way. And it is getting cheaper and cheaper eventually. So I, we are yet to hit that point where it almost feels like natural, uh, but it's just a technology evolution. Got it. And I can imagine if you're using a headset of some kind, those delays, those glitches must be so much more noticeable um, and yes. very and, and almost impossible to ignore. Because I can imagine, like, if, hypothetically speaking, if I'm using an app on my phone and it kind of delays for one second i may just put it back in my pocket for like yeah. 30 seconds and then like come back to it i would imagine if you're wearing a headset you're kind of locked in already so you're not just going to take it off you're like <laughs> no when when is this when is this gonna yeah. when is this thing gonna happen so to say exactly. so yeah yeah uh, so i guess the metaverse uh, one could say is going to intensify both kind of good experiences, but also kind of some of those glitches and those errors and those mistakes and whatnot. They're going to be way more noticeable. So I would imagine if you're a company, you better come out with a very damn good project, you know, uh, you know, if it's in the metaverse in particular, because uh, people are really going to notice it. Yeah. And, and on top of that, when you like, it depends on the medium you are interacting with it. So when you are like, you know, on a, a button-based mobiles and stuff, right. the acceptance level were different. When you went to touch, it became different. It became more strict because now people are like, you know, you see kids and kids are doing like banging on the screen oh, because yeah. they think the thing is stuck, uh, all right, or they didn't see any response and things. When you go into like speech, it even becomes like more, uh, more strict than that. And when you go to visual plus speech, it even gets like extreme. And right. that means when you say something, you need to hear something back or get the response. Or when you sure. turn your head, it needs to move. It becomes more and more time critical as you go into more uh, immersive experience, so to say. Right. And that, that definitely uh, definitely makes sense as well. Yeah. And as far as um, you know, NFTs and gaming, uh, one of the, I guess you could say, more recent developments or areas of success is play to earn. In particular, the Philippines and Vietnam and some in other yeah. regions of Southeast Asia and uh, also um, 
both, I guess you could say, Western and, and South Africa as well. People are essentially able to play games day in and day out and actually just earn cryptocurrency uh, from that. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, you know, some of your thoughts as far as where that's going to go. Is it going to end up going to the United States, Australia, worldwide, or do you think it's going to be kind of more localized? Uh, I mean, it is there in Australia and other um, countries as well. Like gaming has right. always been a big industry. In fact, Australia has created some of the biggest games out there. Uh, it's it's actually very odd that um, we are small and we don't have connectivity to the rest of the world as good as the other countries. But then when it comes to like graphics and all that, if you think in Hollywood as well, a lot of the VFX studios are based in Australia. So we have a very good presence in that. Um, and gaming is going around and play to earn and all these platforms are getting popularity. Uh, maybe obviously with our population, the numbers are gonna remain slow. Uh, I don't think that will change, but in general, those platforms are targeted at an audience, which is like you know younger audience who has some time and who has passion for playing and all that. And I sure. usually distinguish people from digitally native people and people who adopted digital world. So I would come in a um, like a category of digital adoption because when I was born, there was no computer, even phone was lucky thing. Uh, and I had my first computer when I actually went to computer engineering. So I, even though I use technology, I'm very passionate about it, I'm right into it. I still think from a digital adoption perspective, but I look at my daughters and they just take it forward. Like, you know, it's there, it, oh, it's sure. there. And the way they interact with the technology is way different than what I do. And for those people, these platforms make complete sense. Like they they get it. They are like, yeah, I would do it. If I'm playing anyway and I can earn while playing, why not? Versus for me, I do not play. So I would not go and play just one. Does it make right. sense? So, there's a digital adoption um, category and then there is digital native category. And often people, when they talk about these use cases, they they misrepresent the use case by pointing them to the wrong audience. Right. They are not really directed at that audience. Like if I want to sell like, you know, 3D games and something or mobile phones, even to my grandma, maybe there's not a use case. But when I put WhatsApp and video call, she loves it because she can see the grandchildren is happy about it and everything so you need to point it to correct audience and i think the audience is already there very uh yeah very well said and uh when it comes to you know cryptocurrencies and you know doing projects and you know um you know the ins and outs of that uh what is your opinion as far as mass adoptions like do you think that's gonna happen for let's say the government of australia adopting in part or in whole one day like uh, some sort of digital currency either it's pegged to the australian into the australian pound sorry right dollar yeah. dollar yeah. right yeah. okay sorry yeah. <laughs> Didn't mean to mix it up the australian dollar or is it going to be something you know unique uh i i think uh there's a lot of mixed sentiment right now i think especially with the volatility this year as far as cryptocurrency Please. being adopted you know as yeah. a whole as like yeah. a legal tender, you know, in, in countries. They, they are already trying that. In fact, uh, most of the governments that I talk to and the regulators and the advisors that work with those regulators, they are already trying to do how rather than if. So I think in last two years, at least, the conversation has shifted from if to how. 
So right. I, I don't think the if is a is um, like any longer a question. It's yeah. just how they will adapt and what would individual policies of different governments might be. And that's the only thing that I can see right now. And I can see that all those conversations are already happening. So uh, it's just like, you know, getting to see how different companies adapt that and what way and what is the application that they adapt. Um, what it comes as a like a curious use case and it has been talked about since the Bitcoin is how the tenders between the countries because the major use case for uh, cryptocurrency is not the currency within the country. I think everybody believes in their country and if, if I give you a dollar, you will uh, have pretty much good faith that it will be like you know recognized within the country but when you go and take your currency outside your country whether it will be recognized or not i'm not talking about us dollar but there are a lot of countries that has that problem that whether their currency is recognized outside their uh, country and that's where i think the crypto has always had the sweet spot saying this is where crypto can help because if the currency is recognized by the government then you do not need to tie it to a particular government and wait for that. So you can have those cryptos and they're accessible everywhere. Right. And um, backtracking a little bit, for those people out there, if they're looking to become developers in yep. blockchain, as somebody who is who already has that skill set, uh, what you know, what would you recommend as a starting point as far as Go programming, programming languages or certifications yeah. and things like that? Yeah, uh, my advice is go out there and do it. There's plenty of forums, Discord servers. There are so many communities that are like helping people. And right. depends on what your background is, the answer might be a course versus going to like, you know, Discord server versus trying few YouTube videos and all that, like in my interviews, Every day I find new ways that people are using to learn these technologies and adapt them. Uh, but as long as you are comfortable with that, those learnings, you can go out and do it. And like, I'm always like, uh, I always get reached out by people who are trying to get into the industry. And I right. always pair them with my developers or someone I know who can help them out and uh, uh, put them in the right direction or anything like that. So uh, again, I think it's a very active community, which is a very good thing. And people in general, they are very helpful to each other. Uh, I have seen some Absolutely. amazing use cases where uh, someone just came and they were like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, like a web developer and I'm trying to get into this. Can you help me out? And they like ended up doing the projects together or you know, taking the course together or becoming a mentor in a, right. uh, in a paid and unpaid ways, different ways. So just reach out to people, all right? Um, I'm always available on LinkedIn as well. If anybody wants to reach out uh, for such, um, like, you know, guidance or anything, I'm always happy to point them in the right direction on help wherever I can. Uh, so just go out there and do it. That's my um, probably advice. Awesome. And uh, I guess, you know, one of the more noticeable developments in the United States is the emerging new tech centers in the U.S. now. So in particular, Miami, Florida, Austin, Texas, in many ways, yeah. it seems to be like those two areas are going to displace kind of New York and Palo Alto, so to say, as far as, you know, uh, you know, the centers of, of Web3 in this country. So with, you know, kind of the momentum you and your team have at X Enabler, um, are there any plans to come to the States? 
We are. So I'm actually actively looking for someone who can be on the ground in Austin or Miami. So if anybody is listening or anybody is interested in working with us, please reach out. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm always available. So reach out if you are um, based in any of those stations and want to collaborate. Awesome. Sounds good. And uh, yeah, uh, on an ending note, if uh, what advice would you give to people who are looking to create their own blockchain companies? A lot of entrepreneurs, I think entrepreneurship in general has exploded uh, upwards yes. since, the, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and going forward. I think people are more inclined to kind of do more risk taking and kind of pursue their dreams and ambitions. So for somebody who's already well, you know, well, well deep into that journey, what advice would you give to aspiring, let's say, programmers, developers who are looking to, you know, do what you're doing or do something yep. similar? So there's one advice that I have heard long time ago, and it goes in sales entrepreneur or like, you know, whatever sense you want is you cannot be delusional and successful at the same time. So <laughs> <laughs> if you well want said. to be successful, like I meet a lot of people who have cool ideas and they didn't even bother and to go and Google and search if there's any company out there doing it. All right. Very good point. I would, I would not say that just because someone did it, you shouldn't do it. No idea is unique. Trust me in today's world, if you have a unique idea, maybe you haven't Googled it enough. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I'm saying is that go find those ideas, go find those examples. They might be doing part of what you, you want to do learn from it see what you need to change what you can do better is there a value proposition how you're going to penetrate do your homework and then go after it go after the, your ideas and execution because ideas are dollar a dime executions are uh, is where you need to focus uh, is a, there's a billion dollar execution no billion dollar ideas wow very well said and i will have to say i think a lot of people lose sight of that I've run into many, many people who, and by the way, this is anecdotally speaking, tell me I have a billion dollar idea. I have a hundred million dollar idea. I hear that all the time. And actually I'll have to say, um, more often than not, I'm not saying always that tends to be a red flag in my mind. Cause I think it's like, if you've already done it, I don't think you're thinking in those terms really, uh, I mean, you know, you, if you I, don't know, you, you don't, you don't really know. Yeah. If I personally think that way, I'm pretty sure there are at least half a million companies out there doing the software development. So it's if I think my, about. yeah, it's the execution yeah. that can be unique and that can be valued. Uh, and you can't sell entire world anyway. So just focus sure. on what you do, how you do, go after it and like, you know, keep improving your processes and your uh, product and then let the world find about it. Well said. Uh, I don't think I can add anything to that great explanation, actually. So <laughs> listen, Prashant, uh, it was an absolute pleasure having you, uh, you know, coming back onto the show today and, uh, you know, discussing what X-Enabler is up to and, you know, some of the things you and your team are going to be working on, you know, in the future. You know, I remember you came on about like eight or nine months ago. We got into the weeds about some of the more programming nuances and so on. So I'm very happy to see a lot of the progress and momentum, you know, you and your team have uh, – gained so far so you know like i said it was an absolute pleasure having you coming back onto the show today and you know getting into the weeds about you know some of these issues yeah no thank you it's always a pleasure coming here for sure 
Well, Prashant, thank you very much. I really do appreciate well, it. Thank you for having right. me. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Sure. Enjoy your day. Yep. Yeah.